Okay. Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 5, we stated it's kind of a preamble to God's covenant with the people of Israel. And 1, 6 of Deuteronomy to the end of chapter 4 is a historical prologue, the past association between God and the people. Now, let me ask you a question, too. As we are kind of close together is this more of a distraction? Does this really sound like an echo to me? You need that? Okay. You need that. Okay. If you need that, fine. Um, okay. 134 through 30, 40 is where we left off. Now, we were noticing that Deuteronomy 1, a lot of Deuteronomy 1, beginning with verse 19, is a review of Numbers 13 and 14. Numbers 13 and 14, where the spies were sent in, and the spies came back with the report that the land is a good land, but the people who dwell in the land are uh, strong, uh, and the walls are well fortified, and we cannot take the land. Deuteronomy 1. And in Deuteronomy 1, the people were afraid, and they said, the Lord hates us. And that's why he's brought us out here to destroy us in the wilderness. What verses 34 through 40 say is that only Joshua and Caleb would be spared in that older generation. Those that were 20 years old and older. In verse 34 and 35, Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath saying, not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I gave, which I swore to give to their fathers. God swore to give the land to their fathers in verse 35. In verse 8, he swore to give the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in verse 34, he swears or takes an oath that he will not give the land to this evil generation. So three times oaths are mentioned in in Deuteronomy 1. Twice the oath to give Israel the land, but in verse 34, this generation will not see the land. Except for, verse 36, Caleb, who followed the Lord fully. And verse 38, except for Joshua. Now, in verse 39, your little ones who you said would become prey, and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good and evil, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. I have used this verse before as a verse that seems to indicate that childhood is an age of innocence. Where a person is not guilty of wrong. We don't believe that children need to be baptized because we don't believe children are guilty of sin. Because some believe in uh, sin or inherited sin... Uh, they also adapted the view of infant baptism. I think the more you look at the context, the stronger this argument becomes here in Deuteronomy 139. Because this generation is not viewed as responsible for the sins of their parents. 
they did not you know, inherit their wrong in that particular respect. The more you think about it, I think you'll come to the same conclusion. There's a really a strong passage to say that uh, infancy and childhood are ages of innocence. Let's focus, though, a little bit more on these verses at the end of the chapter where the people say, we're going to go fight anyway. You know, we should have gone up to take the land. Now we recognize our sin and we're going to go up and we're going to fight. In verse 41, then you answered and said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. This is the only confession of sin in the book of Numbers like this. We have sinned against the Lord. We will indeed go up and fight just as the Lord commanded us. And every man of you girded on his weapons of war and regarded it as easy to go up to the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up nor fight. For I am not among you, otherwise you will be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, but you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled at the command of the Lord and acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. God had told the people, go up and fight. They rebelled at those words. And they did not listen. We saw that particularly in verse 26. The people are now saying we have sinned. Now I want to tell you a hard lesson of this text. Acknowledging our sin in our wrong don't mean we have all the opportunities that we lost by our disobedience before. In this particular case, they lost the opportunity through their disobedience. They say we've sinned and we're going to go up and we're going to fight. And God says you better not go up and fight. Because I am not going among you. The text tells us in verse 43, the people rebelled. The word rebelled is used twice in this chapter. It's used in verse 26 to talk about the people rebelling in not going to fight. And it's used in verse 43 for the people going up to fight when God told them not to go. Now, this particular word for rebelled, it's not a common word in the Old Testament. Uh, I have written down somewhere uh, how many times that it's used in the Old Testament. But do you remember if this, if your son is stubborn and rebellious, you bring him to the elders of the city and say, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. Remember what book that appears in? This book. What was that? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. Let me give you the ultimate illustration of a rebellious son is Israel. They've been referred to as a son in verse 31, the rebellious in verse 26, and verse 43. What does that tell you about God's mercy and God's compassion to the people, God's grace to the people? You've rebelled against the command of the Lord, and you have acted 
presumptuously. In verse, in verse 44, the Amorites who lived in the hill country came against you and chased you as bees do and crushed you from Seir to Hormon. Now, I have one illustration. I don't want to get lost in this illustration. I have one illustration from my childhood. I was eight, and a, and a group of us guys accidentally sat on a hornet's nest. An adult recognized it and said, you're on a hornet's nest. And screaming and running in every direction ensued. When I read that in the Bible about bees coming, it is just pure panic. Went over everybody. I was running and screaming. I didn't know completely what I was running and screaming about. Uh, but one of the kids did get bit several uh, times. And, and the thing about this promise that's interesting in verse twenty, verse forty-four, chased you as bees do. In Deuteronomy chapter seven, this is a promise given to Israel about. Their enemies. In Deuteronomy 7, in verse 20, moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet's nest against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. Sometimes this is a promise to God's people that I'm going to make them disoriented. I'm going to make your enemies confused. They're going to be in chaos like hornets were attacking them. Deuteronomy 7.20 uses that expression. I believe it is Joshua 24 and verse 12 that use this expression. But there the expressions are used to talk about God blessing Israel and God sending the enemy into confusion. Now God is sending Israel into confusion because they are disobedient and because they did not listen to the Lord. And in verse 45, then you returned and wept before the Lord, and the Lord did not listen to your voice, nor give ear to you. Now you might think that's harsh. God's not listening to their voice, even though they are weeping and crying. We'll look at verse 43. I spoke to you, but you would not listen. They didn't listen to God. So God doesn't listen to their cries. That doesn't mean God doesn't love them. That doesn't mean God is not long-suffering with them. But it does mean they're going to experience the consequences of their sin. They're not going to go up immediately and take the land. They're going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. Now, what questions do you have right there at the end, Mike? Disobey God again, then there was no hope. 
it's always hard saying what could have happened in a specific circumstance. But I would say that this might be a little different, Mike, with what you're suggesting in other examples and what's happening here. Often when people finally do repent and turn, God relents and removes a punishment. Here it is not so much that God is going to remove some horrible punishment like in the book of Joel, uh, a day of the Lord, which seems like a locust, locust plague, but God doesn't give them the blessings immediately. Now, I don't know if that makes a big distinction or not, but, but, I, but I see, I see, I see in my mind a somewhat a distinction, but, but, but obviously, whichever the case is, I think it reminds us that God will not be deceived by an insincere, incomplete repentance. Bob, you had a question as well. if you're going to repent, if you're really going to repent for not listening to God, it means you're going to listen to God the second time. So we're going to repent. It's like a football coach one time, he said, um, you know, your, your defense was pretty bad. He said, yes, but our offense made up for it by being really bad also. And and sometimes that's the way we do. You know, they they make up for it by disobeying again. So that is an interesting observation. Sarah? So here we have the Caleb and Joshua are the only two of the generation who are going to go into the land, and it doesn't it doesn't give um, Moses an out. It doesn't say, "Well, it's Moses plus Caleb and Joshua." And you know, part of me goes, "Well, well wait a second, because Moses didn't rebel." And I mean, it's it's kind of an example of God knowing what's going to happen and not. Putting that little caveat in there, but I don't think I had ever noticed that Moses was excluded from being spared. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just. Yes. In, in 37, of course, he mentioned that right in that context. Um, this is not exactly what you said, Sarah, but I wanted to use this to bring it out. Okay. Um, who else doesn't seem to perish in the wilderness? And besides Joshua and Caleb, it, seem, it seems like the Levites as a tribe, because they weren't counted among the normal people because they were not going to war like them and therefore did not disobey. And it doesn't seem like that applied to them as well. If we see something to the contrary to that... Uh, in Deuteronomy, let's, let's all call attention to it. But, but I think that is the case. So I appreciate Sarah giving me an opportunity to to say that. Bob? Even though it doesn't mention the Levites, wouldn't the wandering have caused those that were uh, 
Paul 
Paul says the same kind of thing in his sermon in Athens in Acts 17. In Acts 17, verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth and determine their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God is the God of all nations, and He gives all nations their land and their territory. Now, in these three cases, why specifically does He state that I'm not going to give you their land? Why, for example, does He say, I am not going to give you Edom's territory? Why, why is that? Because He's already given it to someone else. Okay, He's given it to someone else. And he's giving it to someone else. He's giving it to Sarah. I was going to say, all three of those are relatives. Okay, all three of these have ties to Abraham. Remember, you see here in verse 4 and verse 8. And Bob has helped me a couple of things here with this little uh, uh, telestrator here, if I can remember. In verse 4 and verse 8, Edom is called your brother's. Because the Edomites were descendants of whom? Esau. And the Israelites, descendants of Jacob, they are your brothers. And I have given you this land. Later, in Deuteronomy 23, verses 7 and 8, God said, do not detest an Edomite because he is your brother. The book of Obadiah, the shortest book in the Old Testament. Obadiah describes that relationship between Jacob and Esau as being brothers. But I will say this too. Even though they were supposed to be brothers, there is no nation that is condemned as often in the oracles against the nations as the Edomites are. Because the Edomites still transgressed those boundaries and mistreated their brothers and celebrated at their demise. Now, the Moabites in verse 9 and the Ammonites in verse 19 are descendants of whom? Lot. I generally don't like that word whom, but uh, it fits here. They're descendants of Lot. The descendants of Lot. Now, because... What, what, what does this tell you? God says in Genesis chapter 12... That uh, I will bless you to Abraham, and through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. Nations are often blessed because of their proximity, their proximity to Abraham and his descendants. And so because they are descendants of Abraham through Lot, or descendants of Abraham uh, through his son Isaac... They are specially blessed in this particular regard. Now, we also stated the other day, we stated that in this historical prologue, God is preaching, uh, Moses is preaching to the people of Israel. He is preparing them for his death. And he is also preparing them to go and fight 
for the land of Canaan because they're going to have to go fight for seven nations stronger and mightier than they are. Also, uh, David was talking to me after class uh, the other day and he, he stated as well another reason. This is a new generation. They need to be reminded of the failures of the previous generation. I know they know some of the, the stories, but, but maybe uh, they need to be driven home to them uh, more strongly. Why had Israel said... Why had Israel said, when they are confronted with the spies' report, we can't take the land? What were the main reasons they gave as to why they could not take the land? People people are giants. People are giants and what else? Walls are fortified. Walls are fortified. The people are giants. And these are the big deterrents. Well... Was that a big deterrent in the Edomites occupying their land? Or the Moabites occupying their land? Or the Ammonites occupying their land? Look in verse 10 of Deuteronomy chapter 2. In verse 10, uh, after God said, Do not harass Moab nor provoke them, I have given the land to them. In verse 10, the Emim lived there formerly. This is in the land that belonged to the Moabites. The Emim lived there formerly. A people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim. But the Moabites call them Amim. The Horites lived there formerly in Seir, and the sons of Esau dispossessed them. The sons of Esau had driven out nations, and the Moabites have driven out nations of people that were just as strong and just as mighty as the Israelites faced. So the Israelites faced strong and numerous people. They faced well-fortified walls. But so had the Edomites. So had the Moabites. And so did the Ammonites. Look at verse 20. In verse 20 of Deuteronomy 2. It is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim. For the Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites called them Zanzumim. A people as great, as numerous, as tall as the Anakim. Now, look at verse 21 because we're about to see something we didn't see in verses 10 through 12. Verse 21, but the Lord destroyed them before them. Not only did they defeat these great and tall and mighty people, but their defeat of them is specifically attributed to the Lord. The Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. In verse 22, just as he did, and the he there is in reference to the Lord, just as the Lord did for the sons of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them. The point is, these nations face the same obstacles to taking the land that God had given them that Israel faces. 
Not only can Israel look on its own history as a lesson to learn, but they can look at the history of their relative nations. They can look at their history as a lesson to them, as a statement to them, that in spite of the size of the walls, in spite of the uh, size of the inhabitants, the Lord can give us the land. The Lord can give us the land. Now, uh, also, uh, I wanted to point out a few other things. If you've got specific questions about anything in verses 1 through 23, I want you to feel free to bring it out. Um, I I, uh, don't always like just uh, giving general overviews here, but, but I want you to notice a couple of things. Um, in verse 6, it said, you shall buy food from them. This is talking about the Edomite, Israel buying food from the Edomites. You shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat. And you shall purchase water from them with money so that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has made known your wanderings. Through this great wilderness, he has known, excuse me, he has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord has been with you, you have not lacked a thing. You have not lacked. Have you ever read those words anywhere else in the Bible together? You've not lacked. Something about a good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It's the same two Hebrew words. Translate not lacked. Right here in Deuteronomy 2.7. Shall not want. My point. God was the good shepherd to Israel. In this barren wilderness where the manna is fed to them every morning and water is provided by various means sometimes even out of a rock God still is the good shepherd who provides for them who cares for them and who meets their needs the Lord your God has been with you you have not you've not lied now one of the things, too, that strikes me about this chapter, that is different from chapter 1. In chapter 1, Israel almost always appears in a bad light. They're disobedient. In this chapter, they're, they're, they're pretty obedient. And sometimes you see it in little things. First of all, it seems that they avoided all these nations that God told them to avoid. And they will eventually go and fight against Sihon and Og in this chapter. But but notice in verse 13. Now arise, the Lord speaks to them. Now arise and cross over Brook Zered yourselves. So we crossed over the Brook Zered. Now I know that's a, that's a very brief statement. But here you have a command in the first part of the verse. And the people are obeying it in the last part of the verse. I will say, it does seem like 40 years in the wilderness taught them a little bit. 
Are they going to learn everything? Do they still have to be rebuked? Yes, occasionally. But they have learned some things through that experience. Now, I also want you to notice, and some commentators were very helpful to me in this respect, in pointing this out, because I probably would have missed this. I want you to notice the description of the previous generation. In verse 14, now, now the time that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zared was 38 years. All the generation of the men of war from within the camp, uh, all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. In verse 16, So it came about when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people. We saw the Lord's oath in 134 and 35 that that generation was not going to enter the land, and indeed that happens. But notice the description of the people. They are described, the ones that die in the wilderness, are described in verse 14 and verse 16 as men of war. Now isn't that ironic? Because they didn't go to war. God says go up and fight. And they didn't fight. And and so really that description of them is an ironic description and somewhat of rebuke for their failure to trust God and go up and take the land. Bob. Yes, yeah, that, that's, yes, I understand what you're saying. Yes, it does seem like they're, they're put in, in a different category. So, so yes, uh, that they were not even counted for the census from that in Numbers, in Numbers, uh, 1, that's in 26. So yes, that is a good point. Yes, I hadn't thought in that. Anything else? Uh, Mary and then, uh, Raymond. The, the men of war, okay, yes, yeah, in a sense, that's true, yes. Um, unfortunately, didn't go to war with the ones they should have, but the ones they shouldn't have. I think the hand of the Lord probably in a more general way uh, just refers that God's hand was a part in it. Whether we can be that specific, Raymond, sometimes God does use that means. Sometimes he does. Uh, Jude verse 5 um, says, Now I desire to remind you that though you know all these things once for all, the Lord, after having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. That doesn't give us any specification as to how. I think, personally, I think the hand of the Lord doesn't so much tell us the how as the who. That ultimately it was God behind it who was causing it to happen, however that is.
that that was obviously a way some of them seem to have been defeated there in that section. So that's right. Now, I want us to, to tie and trying to keep this theme together right here. But here are lands, God said, verse 5, verse 9, verse 19, I have not given you these territories. I have given these territories to Edom, Moab, and Ammon. But now, God is going to begin to say a couple of territories that He does give them. Now remember, this is review too of what happened. So, Sihon is mentioned in verses um, 24 through 37, and in 3 verses 1 through 11, Og is mentioned. This was also described in the book of Numbers, Sihon in Numbers 21, uh, verses 21 through 32, Og in Numbers 21, uh, verses 33 through 35. Now, we, we, we stated as a theme a moment ago that God is giving Israel the land. God, they're going to have to fight nations stronger and mightier than they are. Nations that have well-fortified walls. Notice how that theme ties in to the conquest of the land of Sihon and Og. Um, they defeated Sihon in verse 36. The Bible says from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, from the city which is in the valley, even to Gilead, there was no city that was too high for us. The Lord our God delivered them all over to us. There was no city too high. The people had said, we can't go in and fight against the people in the land because their cities are well fortified. Well, when they later were to fight against Sihon, there was no city too high. Look in 3 verse 5 that talks about Og. After the Bible describes the defeat of Og, it says all these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many unwalled towns. So my point that I'm trying to stress, the the reasons that a previous generation had given why they could not take the land were no obstacles when God gave the people the land of Sihon and the land of Og. Now, look to at a description of Og. Look at chapter 3 and verse 11. Chapter 3 and verse 11. The Bible says that only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It was in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits, and its width four cubits by ordinary cubits. Okay. Um, I can remember when I was little being fascinated by the Genesis Book of World Records. And remember the biggest man that ever lived that weighed about a thousand pounds. And I don't know if anybody surpassed that now. Um, it's certainly a good goal to shoot for. Uh, but, but he had to be buried in a piano case. 
I remember that story. And I would read it every time a new edition come out to see if anybody had, had beat him yet uh, before I gave up that process. How big is the... the and some of your translations have coffin. Some of your translations may indicate in verse 11 this is a coffin. Some of your translations may say a bed. There, there's a dispute as to what that word what is best conveyed by that word? But I don't think it's material for our understanding. How long, how wide is this bed and tomb or whatever it is of Og? 13 by 6. 13 by 6. 13 to 14 feet long. About 6 or so, 6 and a half feet wide. That's a pretty big guy. That's the king. Why give that detail? I mean, is that just useless trivia like the Genesis Book of World Record? Or is there a point to that, Sarah? Well, back previously it talked about the Rephaim. The Rephaim, they're the big guys. And, you know, these are the descendants of them and this is who we got rid of. And this is the last of them. And so this is like an example of how big this walled city of a man was yeah. and, um, <laughs> to give an idea of what God had done for them. There's no city that's fortifications are strong enough and there's no person that's big enough that can stand against them. The, the two main reasons they said we can't go, I mean, both of them are eliminating in these victories over Sihon and Og. What happens demonstrates how great God is. That in spite of the size of the inhabitants, in spite of how well fortified their walls, God can give them victory. And so, so what I'm trying to say to you is when the Bible seems like it's giving insignificant, irrelevant details like that in Judges 3.11, each were very express purpose. It's teaching us something. Now, I'm not saying... That as a teacher, I always grasp that purpose exactly and communicate it effectively. But it's there. And the fact that we can see it there so many times tells us, keep thinking if we don't see it. Bob, you had a thought. Very interesting. 38 years after they had said, they're too big, the walls are too Two years Going into the promised land, God takes them on these battles against the very same things that they had complained about and hands down win. Exactly. And that's the purpose of this. Exactly. And not only, but, but this, these victories of Sihon and Og also are a forecast of what's going to happen again right after Moses dies. Because they're still going to fight, and Moses tells them in this book, is seven nations mightier and stronger than you are. Hey, how many times do you say that if you're a military commander? This army's a lot stronger than we are. You don't say that as a military commander. This army's stronger than we are. This army can whip us. But the reason is, he's trying to get the people to trust in the Lord and not to trust in their own power and their own strength. And um, now, there's a lot more we could have said 
about Sihon and Og. I want you to look in verse 24. Verse 24, this is chapter 2, verse 24. Uh, God says, I have given Sihon the Amorite king of Heshbon and his land into your hand. Remember all the references we have on the board in 5, 9, and 19. God said, I have not given you this land. I have not given you the land of Edom, Moab, or Ammon. Now in 2.24, I have given Sihon into your hand, and I have given his land into your hand. Also notice, Sihon is specified in verse 24 as Sihon the Amorite. Mm-hmm. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 27, the people had complained that God has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us in the hand of the Amorites. No, He didn't. God didn't bring you out to give you into the hands of the Amorites. God is giving the Amorites into your hands. But you're going to have to have enough faith and trust to see it. Now again, these aren't irrelevant lessons for us. Do we have enough faith and trust and courage in God to, to live for Him when the foes are stronger and their cities are well fortified? Do we have enough faith to do it? It'll mean walking by faith and not walking by sight. I'll tell you that. But in verse 25... God says, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens, who when they hear the report of you shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Uh, Often, uh, God is basically saying, I'm going to make their hearts melt. Remember, back in chapter 1, in verse uh, 28, the people said, our brethren have made our hearts melt. God's going to do that to their enemies now in 2 and verse 24 and 25. But in verse 26, they sent messengers to Sihon. Originally, they give him terms of peace. They ask for terms of peace. He comes out against them to fight. Notice in verse 30, the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand as he is today. God hardened Sihon's heart. You ever read of that anywhere else in the Bible? Yeah. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God will also be said to harden the heart of the Canaanites who fought against Israel in Joshua 11 verse 20 when we get there. But God will harden your heart. And, but what happens is God gives Sihon into Israel's hand. Verse 33, they kill him, they kill his sons, they destroy the men and women and children of the city, and they take their animals as prey. There is no city so well fortified that it can prevent them from taking the city. And same thing you see in chapter 3, same thing you see with Og king of Bashan, a lot of the notes that are given in 2.24 through 37 about Sihon are stated in 3.1 through 11 about Og, 
For example, in 3 verse 2, sounds like 224. I have delivered him and all his people into your hand. In verse 33, in verse 3, the Lord our God delivered Og, just like 233. In 3.3, 3, there's no survivor, just like 234. In um, 3.5, the, the well-fortified walls don't provide uh, any kind of help, just like in 236. And uh, so, so many of the elements that are stated in chapter 2 about the defe- defeat of, of Sihon apply also the defeat of Og in chapter 3. Now, my notes, I've got about 9 or 10 pages already, and that's single space. That's not, that's not double space. Uh, I, I, I may try to send these things out, okay? Um, um, if I, I, I'm... I hope it can help somebody because I know we've gone over some of these things too quickly. But do you have a question as we close Mike? And, so, and, so when Rahab made the statement that the people were faint-hearted, yeah. that's the same idea as same, the heart. The same idea, yes, in Joshua 2, 9 to 11. Same idea. I, I, I don't know if it's always the exact words, but it's the same idea. And, <laughs> so, yeah. They're kind of a little sheepish here, but then they're kind of developing over time. So maybe they need that time to hold us to work up a little bit. That's right. That's right. It, yeah. The, their faith is going to grow. Yeah. There was a hand back here and a hand up here. Okay. I was just going to say, out of all of the things, this is a busy, busy text, and there's a lot of stuff in it, but the thing that kind of overshadows it all is the faithfulness of God. He's faithful in everything he says he'll do. Even when he says, I won't go with you, he won't. He does. Yeah, yeah, and when he says, I will, I will, or I give the land to yeah. them, he gives it. So yes. his faithfulness is the it's biggest the thing point. in this whole thing. Israel was unfaithful in one, pretty yeah. faithful in two, but God is always faithful in all of them. And Raymond, did you have a thought? Okay.